to come and be with you. Uh, can I give you? Yeah. Thank you. And uh, a real privilege. And there are so many of you that I know. I did say to one or two, it felt like going back to the 1980s. Well, 1980, actually. Um, so it's a real joy to kind of be with you. If you've got your Bible, and why wouldn't you? It's uh, Genesis chapter 41 that we're going to kind of engage with. And it's a really long chapter, so I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, and then I'm going to jump to verse 37. Okay? So Genesis 41, and from verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then if we jump down to verse 37... This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, <coughs> excuse me, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot and they called out from before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephanath Paneah, And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. 
So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put food in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the, first of the, the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. We'll stop there. In 1985, Catherine Wentworth became obsessed by her half-sister's husband. Her passion, however, was unrequited. She went to her half-sister's lawyer with a fictitious letter which led to the breakup of this marriage. She pursued him again, but he had found love elsewhere. She lost touch with reality and decided that if he, she couldn't have him, no one could. So she ran him down in her car and she killed him. Eighteen months later, Catherine's half-sister, the one who had become divorced from the man, awoke one morning to hear sounds in her bathroom, and on tentatively entering into the bathroom, she found her husband alive and well and in the shower. Bobby Ewing had come back to life. <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? This is why sermons take so long. It took me several goes to get this right. The dream sequence, however, was used initially to cope with Patrick Duffy leaving Dallas, the soap opera. Uh, but dreams did never turn out as imagined. And the dream had untold consequences, but not on Dallas, but on its spin-off, Knott's Landing. Who remembers Knott's Landing? Yep, just see who the old people are. <laughs> just right there. The characters in the soap Knott's Landing depended on the story of Bobby's demise to make any sense. And now that Bobby had come back to life, Knott's Landing didn't make sense. Not that it made sense in the first place, you understand, but it didn't make sense. Knott's Landing, therefore, they then took a decision to become a program of science fiction where they became an alternate universe and so continued with their story. Dreams can make a huge difference in reality. So I'm effectively going to talk about dreams, words and promises as if somehow they're wrapped up in one thing. Okay? Because essentially what Joseph had was a dream. That dream was God's living word to him, his promise of what God was going to do. And it makes a huge difference what happens. So I'm going to talk with three points, because that's what good preachers do, is what I've heard. Uh, three points, and the first one is this. The frustration of dreams. 
the frustration of dreams. Who woke last night, who woke, this, not last night, this morning, having had a dream last night? Who can remember it? Oh, this is good. <laughs> now you wonder, is it prophetic? <laughs> I'll come to that in just a minute. <laughs> I, I don't dream very often, but I did last night. I dreamt of, of two uh, tornadoes along Tankerton Seafront, one out to sea and the other one going up by the tennis courts. I should imagine playing tennis while that's going by is a, a bit distracting. Um, but that's about as much as I can remember. Sigmund Freud, he says, dreams equate to wish fulfillment. What you dream is somehow what you're hoping for. Now, I don't know what to do with my dream from last night, but it has occurred to me that I wonder if I wish to be on a roller coaster with Tommy Cooper with a pumpkin on my head singing, she'll be coming round the mountain when she comes. Because that's what our dreams can seem like to us. Very strange, random and disjointed. What do they mean? You see, in the West, we tend to see dreams as random, obscure, surreal and mostly unhelpful. That's the way we've been taught to take with, go with them. We don't really know if they mean anything. And if they do, it's something very obscure. But, and this does feel very relevant, the Muslim world rates dreams very highly because it is the only way for them to hear God in the present. So dreams to them are very important full of meaning, full of purpose, and they trust that if God's going to speak, he's going to do it through a dream. How wonderful it is then that so many Muslims have turned to Christ because of dreams. So if you want to pray for the Muslim world, pray for them to dream of Christ, because that will be meaningful to them. The ancient world differentiated between what's called passing dreams, which I'm guessing is what you had last night, Joe, and a living dream. A living dream is something that has purpose. It lives with you because there is something for you in it to grasp. Now, Joseph, of course, as you have already seen, had two dreams, which he shared with his brothers. But what he when he shared with his brothers, what he actually did was he illustrated three character traits. Three character traits which are actually very important to grasp as we move on with the story. He expressed arrogance. He put himself up above everybody else. He wasn't worried about what anybody else felt or thought. He promoted himself. You will bow down to me. He expressed his immaturity. He was thoughtless. With no care for his brothers, he's only worried about his own standing. And he was foolish. He did not foresee nor consider the consequences of what he had done. So Joseph's story, and what makes it great, is the transformation of his character to become the godly man that we revere now. And if we don't understand Joseph's story as a character transformation, we're missing the point. We're missing it. It's <laughs> Does, is there some, do you have to put money in a pot or something? 
a tenor. You see, Joseph's story is about the transformation of his character, not on the eventual outcome. The eventual outcome is wonderful, it's excellent, we're told it, but what's interesting is Joseph's character. Character comes first above all other things. If we think it's about the outcome, the destination, I think we're mistaken. We're to become like Christ. It's about our transformation from one degree of glory to another degree of glory until we reach glory. And it's about our character. We become more Christ-like. We express more love because without love it's nothing. And there is more glory to God because of it. In 1990, which does seem a very long time ago, I was at Spring Harvest with Ruth, my wife, and with various other people, and John and Joe were there, I think. You were, weren't you? And I heard, while I was listening to a guy called Patrick Sukdeo, I felt God call me to become a leader then. I didn't become an elder till 1990, but started to work towards it. Now, I remember going up to John Way and saying, I think God has called me to be a leader, and he said... I want to know if you will put the chairs out. And it's kind of like, okay, is that what I want to hear? Um, I wonder why they weren't putting me on the platform immediately. But you see, it lodges, it wants you to put the chairs out. Why? Because it's servant-hearted. Because if you're not prepared to even put the chairs out, why would we put you up here? Now, there ought to be some encouragement. I still do chairs now. Because... Back then, it always illustrated to me, if we remain servant-hearted, we can train others to be servant-hearted and we can express Christ. So even now, I get involved in putting the chairs out because it feels I can do that, I can be involved in that. And actually, it's, not, it's a small job in one sense, but without it, you'd be sitting on the floor. So somebody puts the chairs out here, I assume. But also importantly... A young man that I'm discipling came to me recently and said, I feel called to leadership. Do you want to know what I said to him? Do you put the chairs out? You see, we pass it on. What I heard, I pass on to you that you pass it on to others, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. It's about our character that God is interested. Our promises, our words, our dreams don't come in a void. It's not going to magically take you from here to wherever you think you're going without change coming. Without change, it's nothing. You will be as bad then as you are now, as it were. So God wants us to be transformed so that we become excellent. So if you have dreams, words, promises, here's some questions for you to consider. Do, what does God want to reform in you? What does God want to reform in you? Ask. Ask God what he wants to reform in you. Have you asked him? Will you allow him to change you as he wants to? And... Have you asked your leaders what they think? I'll tell you, God gave them to look after you, to shepherd the sheep. Ask them for wisdom. Let them tell you what you need. Secondly, 
the fortitude of dreams. So dreams can be frustrating, because we can't always see. Very rarely does a dream have a time on it. So we never quite understand when. So secondly, the fortitude of dreams, the, the perseverance and determination of them. In the ancient world, we only have one writer who we have the writings on dreams, and that's a guy called Artemidorus. It may not sound very exciting, but actually some of what he says is really riveting. Uh, one of the things he says is what the most auspicious kind of dream is. Are you ready? The most auspicious dream that you can have is of eating human flesh. It didn't sound all that auspicious to me, <laughs> uh, other, other than it made me wonder if I had homicidal tendencies. But actually for him, you see, it becomes an issue about power and authority. That if you're eating a human, it shows that you're ruling over them in some way. It was an auspicious dream of great things. So some things are stated within the dramatic power of a dream. These dreams hold up against all the odds, and challenges are overcome by the dream rather than the other way round. We're not overcome by the challenges. We keep our eyes fixed on, what has God given me? What has he said? What is his plan? Now, my Ruth, who is leading worship at Faversham this morning, some years ago, about 10 years ago, actually, we took a decision that Ruth needed to go back to work. It was a financial decision, practical at the time. We needed to do something like that. And so she looked to go back to work after 10 years at home, uh, bringing Stacy up. We prayed, not together particularly, because that wasn't something we do. We just prayed and then got back together and talked about it. And we both felt that Ruth should be in a big environment, we felt that God had spoken to both of us separately, that she needed a big environment to work out a new career. We weren't sure where at that point. And at that point, she had gone for a job as a PA to a builder who was expanding his business. Quite a small builder, but expanding. But we felt that didn't seem quite big enough. And so she started to apply for roles at the University of Kent. In the meantime, the builder came back and offered her the job. And we talked about it and we said, we need to say no to this. So we said no. And we carried on looking. She applied for a job up at the university. The builder came back and offered more money. That's when you've got to know, does the dream, does the word, does the promise hold good? Or are you going to compromise it? And we've talked about it, we prayed about it, and we felt we'd say no again, and she would pursue the university, because we were beginning to feel more confident that's where she should be. So she said no to the builder. We laid a hold of the word, the promise, the dream, and she got a role at the university. She was there for about four months, and two jobs came up. One in the psychology department, which was a, a, a really important role, and a secondary role in the registry in the Vice-Chancellor's office. And we both felt she should be at the centre and take the one in the registry. A less important role initially. They said to Ruth, they gave her her interview, and they said, we will let you know at the end of the week 
This was on a Wednesday, I believe. By the time she got back to her office, they had phoned ahead and told her they wanted her. You see, the promise is starting to be fulfilled and come out. She took the job, and she is now, so to cut a long story short, she is now the executive assistant to the vice-chancellor of the University of Kent, the vice-chancellor being the top role. The vice-chancellor, this, for the next two years, is the president of Universities UK, which is a political role and has significant influence across this country. And Ruth is head of PAs and more and more doing teaching within that role and having more and more influence. The university came back and said, we want you not to go anywhere, so they paid her more money so she doesn't take another job. Why? Because the dream is from God. God has said, I want you at the centre here. And so the promise has been fulfilled, not without challenge, you understand. Having had a liver transplant, you know that that is part of our story. God promised, fulfilled, and now she's walking into the good of it. Why? Because we held on to the dream against the challenges. And we allowed ourselves to see what God wanted to do. There is changing whilst waiting. Now Joseph, and this is excellent about him, believed his dreams wholeheartedly. He doesn't ever compromise his dream as far as we can see. He stood morally straight up against a woman coming on to him and he ended up in prison. He did the right thing, but doing the right thing does not automatically lead to the best place or outcome. Understand that. Don't think because I've done the right thing it must work out for you. That's not the way of the world. In prison, Joseph interprets two dreams. And by the way, did you, have you noticed that Joseph had two dreams, he interprets two dreams, Pharaoh has two dreams. There's that nice rhythm and pattern if you're looking for that kind of thing. In prison, he interprets two dreams, the baker and the cupbearer. He told the truth. One of you is going to die. Joy. And he maintained his honest character within it. He told the truth. He didn't try and reinterpret it and make it nice. Soft focus. What he actually said is, it's not going to go well for you. He trusted God with his gift. Do not all interpretations belong to God, he says. And then he asked for favour from those he served. Remember me. When it comes to interpreting what God has said there needs to be sobriety. That sober sense of, has God said this to you? What evidence is there? What is God going to do? The dreams, words, promises rarely work out exactly as we imagine. You see, there are too many other factors. And we have to trust for the core of the dream that God will bring it to pass in his time. So sometimes we need to make sure we are interpreting it soberly. Now Faustina, the wife of Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, she had a dream of twin serpents. One serpent was fiercer than the other. She saw it as a wholly positive dream. 
Now, I don't know, but having a dream of serpents doesn't feel very positive, but for her, it really was. She felt it was a significant dream. Sure enough, she gave birth to twins, Antoninus and Commodus. They shared their birthday with the worst of all Roman emperors, Caligula. Now, the Romans in the city, they saw this as wholly negative. They saw it as an omen of dread. So Faustina is saying, here's a positive, two serpents. The fact they're born on the same day as Caligula makes the Romans go, something wrong here. Which one's right? In the end, you'll tell them by their fruits, Antoninus dies, Commodus becomes the emperor, and sure enough, 2,000 years later, the film Gladiator is made. And you can see Commodus is as bad. He's really a very bad emperor. Faustina saw it as positive. You see, she wasn't prepared that there might be another option. A sober interpretation and submission to God with wise counsel will produce the best possible hope. So hold on to your dreams and your words and your promises by all means, but soberly, submitting it to wise counsel so that you can face the difficult questions that ought to come. Ask the difficult questions. So we have the frustration of dreams, the fortitude of dreams, but thirdly, there's the fulfillment of dreams. Joseph is in prison. At that point, let me ask you a question, which you might want to come back to me. Where is the best place for Joseph to be? He's in prison. The promises of God are not working out. Nobody's remembering him. Where would the best place for him to be? Be. Free with his family? Anybody want to agree with that? In prison. Now, sorry? In God's will, as the Christian answer has come out. <laughs> Within the Lord's will. <laughs> I shall remind you about that sometime. <laughs> you see, the reality is we think, if it was us, where would we want to be? Where we want to be is, as Wally said, with family, with those we... But the best place, that's where Joe said, in prison. As hard as it is, he's in the best place. And we can go at it and go, this doesn't match up with anything. God didn't say he would end up in prison. He's in prison all alone. Nothing is being fulfilled here. Unless God has a purpose in his character, then it is. That makes sense of this. His character is being transformed. He's learning to be patient, to trust that God will bring it in his time. Don't doubt that he's in the best place. All things work together for, the, for good and for those according to his purpose. So how can he not be in the best place? Romans 8, 28. Can you imagine being Joseph? Have you done that? Have you kind of put yourself in his place and thought, what would this be like? You're given these two amazing dreams where you are lifted up above everybody else. 
Can you imagine what that feels like? Then you're thrown into a pit because your brothers hate you. And I always say that Joseph is one of the least likable characters in the Bible. Lots of people love him. I really don't. You know, it's not popular to say that, but it's true. I find him annoying and irritating. Until he gets better, obviously. He gets sold into slavery. That's not all that encouraging. It's not going that well. Then he gets to work for an important man, so perhaps things are starting to look up. But then his wife accuses him of inappropriate behaviour, which he manages to get away from by running naked down the high street. Things could get better than that. He's sent to prison. It's not his best day, is it? It's not going very well for somebody with the promise of God on them. He aids two prisoners. And then, can you imagine this? Somebody interprets your dream for you, it sees you through, you get out, and then you forget all about the man who told you. And you're forgotten for two years. Two years seems such a long time. A long time to be forgotten. In prison, in a pit, in a foreign country, with no family, with no friends. It's just you. Do you know what you need at that point? You need to know the promise of God. You need to know that God has and is going to sustain you. One day, and it does for Joseph, it's just one day, an ordinary day, another day of being stuck in a pit with no one. One day, they open up the door. Joseph, we want you. Now, Joseph, you understand, would have been in a right state. Dirty, grubby, probably bearded, long hair, a mess. Sorry for those of you with beards and long hair. Not that there are many of those here. (laughs) He's taken out and cleaned up. You know, because actually being clean-shaven, head, face, was very, very much the thing in Egypt. So he's cleaned up and taken to Pharaoh. Now we will find out, has Joseph learnt anything? Has he learnt anything at all? Yes. Because in verse 16 it tells you that when Pharaoh says to him, I heard you interpret dreams, he says, it is not in me. Now at that point, what he's actually doing is he's expressing his dependence upon God. It is God who reveals. It is God who knows. It is God who raises up. He has not insisted upon his own understanding anymore. He has become humble. Humility gains us God's grace. If you're ever wondering where God's grace has gone, perhaps you need to humble yourself. Remind yourself of the scripture. What it says is, the humble gain God's grace, but God is opposed to the proud. In humility, he can see his true position, alone, isolated, needy, dependent. It is God who sees all. And Joseph points to God, not himself. 
now his gifts can come to the fore because actually he's recognizing who comes first. God comes first. And then he can start to move into the skills and talents which God has given him. And so he does. He uses his wisdom and his new maturity to interpret the dream soberly and with a maturity which allows Joseph to make the unasked-for suggestion that leaves the conclusion to Pharaoh. What you need is a wise and discerning man. Now, Pharaoh didn't ask for that. But actually, in the position he was in, he felt he could say, what you need here is a wise and discerning man. He doesn't say, hello, it's me. He doesn't say that. But he is saying that. Because none of the other wise and discerning men could tell the dreams, could they? Only one. And that's how you know wisdom in Egypt, who can interpret the dream. And Pharaoh can see it. Joseph leaves it to God to raise him up. He's not agitating for position. That's what, when we, want, we feel called to leadership, we can do. When you feel called to that, we can start to agitate. How? When? Now? If I do this, this will happen. It doesn't work like that. This has to be about reliance upon God. Joseph has at last shown himself to be utterly trustworthy. God can trust him. God, never mind Pharaoh, can trust him with authority, with power, and with honour. That reflects the three things that you'll find in the scripture there. The ring, the collar, and the clothes are reflections of authority, of power, and honour. Joseph is given great authority to go throughout the land. The vizier in Egypt was a very, very powerful figure. Very often, the vizier rose to be Pharaoh, because they bumped Pharaohs off. But they were very powerful. They actually had their own tombs, uh, which took years and years to get ready, just the same as the Pharaohs, just smaller. So they're very powerful. So he's given all this authority to go throughout the land in a chariot just behind Pharaoh, where everyone has to bow down to him. So he's been raised up by God at the right time. He's given power to be able to command what happens. And being able to do that will bring his family to Egypt and honour. Everyone knows who he is. Jesus, we are told, learned obedience. That's sometimes a bit hard for us to get our head around. How does the perfect man learn obedience? But it's about learning to step into more and more responsibility in the most appropriate manner. Joseph, as we can see, had to learn obedience. David, after being told he would become king, went back to the fields and learned obedience. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness. He could have come out years earlier, presumably, but waited till just the right time when he was obedient to what God had planned. Paul, after coming to salvation, went away for two or three years and learned about obedience. Do you think that it will be any different for any of us? No. 
We have to learn to be obedient to the Lord. And it sometimes is challenging, even when you've been a Christian a long time. You think you should know some of these things. Actually, I think it was uh, Barry said about we're in relationship with God. Actually, what God wants is for us to be in that relationship, not going through the motions of it, but in it. That's what I'm learning right now. God isn't doing things the way I imagine him to because I'm, I'm not being as in it as I should be, could be. And actually the desire has grown and grown. I want to be in that because that's where God is. And when God speaks to you, you just, it's the best thing ever. Makes the football results disappear into the distance. We must learn obedience within the relationship that God wants us to have. It's dynamic, it's living, it's exciting. Once we put God's kingdom first, all other things get added. And that's part of the story here for Joseph. Once the kingdom has actually come first, as opposed to his plan, he gets married, he has children. Signs of favour. So Joseph's journey is from dream to pit, pit to slavery, slavery to prison, prison to vizier. Positionally, he's been raised up. He's a foreigner in a foreign land who's become the second most powerful man over the nation. That doesn't happen easily, not in the ancient world. He's positionally raised up. But what's brought him to that place is that his character has been transformed. He's not the arrogant man that he was. He's not the one lording it over the others. And when his brothers do finally come, and I don't want to steal your thunder for when you do the last bits, but when the brothers come, it's not about his position in relation to them anymore. It's about how much he loves them. That's what will matter. His character has been transformed. The promises, the words, and the dreams of Joseph's life are fulfilled. Isn't that exciting? Didn't you look at that and go, we know how the story comes out. Are you ready to go through the character transformation that might be necessary to enter into the promises and words that you have? And I don't mean just as individuals, as a church. That's going to come. You will have to face that. <laughs> I don't know whether to dance or... Uh, that won't bless you. What I really would like to do is to pray for those of you who have promises and you're wondering what's happened to them. Where have my dreams gone? What needs to happen? So I just ask you, if you'd like to just close your eyes, we're going to pray, but for those of you that, you know, you've got a dream, a word, a promise, and you're wondering what's happened to it, if that's you, would you like to stand?